finding their seat. Just a reminder on the uh, prayer list. I'm on the on the announcements and things to keep on your prayer list. First of all, uh, the next men's prayer breakfast is going to be Saturday, May 21st. So deacons will meet May 21st. But pray for Vacation Bible School. That's June 13th through 15th. And then Camp Arete, July 16th to 23rd. So keep that on the schedule. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we stop walking by the Spirit, or actually the order is that when we stop walking by the Spirit, then we are walking according to the sin nature. The way to recover is to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God and we are instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So before we start, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you are in in fellowship and right relationship with the Lord, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful so much for the opportunity to come before your throne of grace and to bring these uh, requests at the beginning of class before your throne of grace. And, Father, we pray for our Vacation Bible School, pray for the workers, those who are preparing, pray for outreach, and that you would prepare uh, those who would come for the reception of the gospel and for learning the word. Father, we pray also uh, for... Uh, Jim Myers, as he's traveling now in Zambia, we're thankful for the initial reports I received this morning that things were going well, although he has quite a bit of interest uh, since he's teaching spiritual warfare, and there's so much confusion about that in Africa. Father, we pray that you would keep him strong and healthy, that he can rest while he's in the midst of these labors. Father, we're thankful for your word that we can come and study, encourage one another by our presence and focusing on your word. Pray that you will help us to understand these important doctrines. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to First Peter 1. Tonight we're going to hit one of the important critical verses in Scripture related to understanding God's multifaceted work of saving us. How does God bring about this so great salvation that that we have? What we've seen in the previous uh, three or four verses is that there is a challenge before us that we are, first of all, to rest our hope, our confidence, fully upon God's grace. We are to be holy as He is holy and... And we are to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in fear. The implications given in verse 17 focus our attention upon the fact that one day we as believers, even though we are saved by grace and sin is not the issue at anything in the future because Christ paid the penalty for that sin, nevertheless, there is a judgment coming. There's an evaluation not to show and reveal what we've done that is wrong and not to expose the sin in our life, but to uh, rather expose that which we have done, where we have walked by the Spirit and what the Spirit has produced in us, and that which is rewarded in terms of our future service for the Lord in um, in the millennial kingdom and on into the future. And that's one of the things that we need to learn to focus on as part of our spiritual growth, learning to live today in light of eternity. We spend a lot of, lot of time on that. But when we look at verse 17, 
we see the, this statement, if you call on the Lord, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, and then the command, conduct yourselves or live your life throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now, what's the reason for that, that, that uh, Peter gives here? It's, it's at the beginning of verse 18. It, it begins with a, an English word that in English looks like a gerund or a participle. It's that ing ending, knowing something. But it's a particular uh, type of participle there in the Greek, and it could be causal or it expresses the reason for the command. We are to conduct ourselves because we know something, because we come to understand fully our salvation. So this is one of the reasons it's so important to review and review and review what was accomplished on the cross for us. Because the more we are aware of the dimensions of what was done on the cross, all of the multifaceted aspects of what God did and what Christ paid for, the more that should motivate us to live for him, the more that should motivate us to press on to maturity, because we understand that we have been saved for a purpose. And that's what Peter is saying here. We're to conduct ourselves a certain way. We're to follow a certain kind of lifestyle because we know and understand something about our redemption. We know that we were not redeemed with corruptible things. And that word for redemption is the Greek word lutrao, which means to ransom something or to redeem something or to pay a price to to purchase something. We use the term redeemed uh, often when we have coupons. You get coupons in the mail or you and email or whatever it is, and you go and you purchase something with it. Somebody gives you a gift card and you redeem that. There is a price that has been paid. And on the basis of the payment of that price, we gain something. And that's the main idea of redemption. And so whether we're talking about the Old Testament words or the New Testament language, it always has this idea of the payment of a price. And and what lies behind that are a couple of different images. And one of those images that we find is the image of buying something in the marketplace. And specifically, it's used... Uh, it's used in relation to slavery, purchasing the freedom of a slave. It's, and it has the idea in one form of the word of to bring that person out of, of the slave market. So it has that idea of purchasing someone's freedom by the payment of, of a price. Uh, there's other dimensions to this idea of, of payment. It's the idea of canceling a debt. It's a financial term. So each of these words, lutrao or agorazo from agora, which is the uh, the word for the marketplace. And so we have people who are, we call them agrophobes. They don't like to go out of the house. They don't like to go out into the marketplace. They stay at home, and uh, you know, after a while they they. They never leave the house. They never go outside because they don't want to be out in open areas and around people. They're, they're fearful. So that's the root of the word, agora. It refers to the open marketplace, uh, in the ancient world, the mercado in, uh, in Greece and Italy, places like that. So it has this idea of, uh, of buying something. And so we can't get away from the economic aspects here. That's why in passages that we'll see, it's related to re, it's related to forgiveness. Because the word for forgiveness is a word that also is an economic word that has the idea of canceling or eradicating a debt. Paying, uh, if you pay off someone's debt, then they no longer have a debt. The debt is canceled. And that's behind the imagery that's used for forgiveness in Colossians 1 and in uh, Colossians 2, verses uh, 12 through 14. So this is a very economic idea uh, that we have here, and that helps us to understand what transpires on the cross. There's an economic transaction that takes place there. And one of the problems that entered into the early church was they, they came up with these different views on redemption, and I talked about it a little bit on Sunday morning, uh, one of the ideas, early ideas to try to explain it was the idea of, of the payment of a, 
of this ransom. But who is the payment paid to? And so for many years, one of the dominant views was the ransom to Satan view. That was the view that was, uh, that came from an early church father who is a source of some good as well as a lot of bad by the name of Origen. Origen is also probably the, the, uh, 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 first systematizer of allegorical interpretation. Uh, he did a lot of other things that were, that were good. Uh, in terms of uh, preserving the text and copying the text, organizing the text, and making uh, various uh, parallel translations so that we could see uh, the you know understand the word meanings, especially in Hebrew and Aramaic, much better. But he also had some really bad theology, and so he had this idea of payment of a price that you have to pay it to someone, rather than just in terms of understanding it judicially that when there is a judicial uh, sentence of guilt, then a, 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 a penalty has to be paid. A penalty has to be assessed and carried out. And it's, it's not necessarily paid to someone. It is paid to satisfy justice. So this word redemption, lutrao, and its synonyms all have this, this economic th- uh, uh, aspect to them. So because you know that you weren't redeemed with corruptible things, notice what the corruptible things are. They're things that we value in our economy. We value gold and silver. And he says it's not corruptible. That is, it does, it's not a, a, a transitory. Eventually, gold and silver, everything else will be destroyed. It's not corruptible like silver and gold. And then he uses the word from your empty manner of life or your aimless conduct. And that's that same word that we were studying uh, earlier uh, related to the conduct back in the previous uh, verses in 17 and then back in... Uh, back in uh, uh, 13, that we have this idea of, of conduct or the way of life. And so our way of life may produce that which has a lot of value. We may, we may become a, a multimillionaire. We may buy a lot of property. We may build and start multiple businesses, and we may become extremely wealthy in this life, but it doesn't last. There's nothing that we can produce in this life that is going to last past that instant of death. After we die, we don't carry anything with us except our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. That's the only thing that goes on into eternity. So the, this brings out this aspect of redemption that goes on for eternity. And then he says, uh, from your aimless conduct. Now, this is really a dig at Judaism. He said, he, remember, Peter is writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered. These are messianic. Uh, believers. That's a term we would use today. They're Hebrew Christians. They are, are Jews who have accepted Jesus as Messiah. But when he uses that phrase, tradition from your fathers, that is a technical term to refer to the, the rabbinical authorities in Judaism. So he's not talking about a Gentile culture there or some past Gentile uh, religions or philosophy. He's talking about the religious teaching that they had inherited uh, through Judaism, that this doesn't uh, produce anything that has eternal or lasting value. He says, in contrast, verse 19, that you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. So we're going to have to understand that term a little bit more as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And, of course, for those of you who uh, may not realize this, today is the last day of, of Pesach, of Passover. Uh, Passover began, usually the Bible uses the term Passover many different ways. It uses Passover to refer to the lamb. Uh, it uses Passover to refer to the first day of Passover, the 14th of Nisan. But the second day, the day after, is the Feast of, un, of uh, Unleavened Bread, and that lasts for seven days. And so Passover began at sundown last Friday, and so we count the days. And now we, tonight, tomorrow... And uh, Saturday is going to be the end of uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it coincides. I, don't, I haven't, ch- I didn't check back on other calendars. It coincides with the fact that Sunday is Orthodox Easter. 
That's Eastern Orthodox churches, Syrian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all the Orthodox, Coptics, they all celebrate Easter Sunday morning. So that means that tomorrow is Good Friday according to Orthodox tradition. I've picked a crummy time to go to Jerusalem tomorrow. It's going to be... The old city is going to be crammed with a lot of religious fanatics. And we're, I mean, because they all come for this thing called Holy Fire. I'm not even sure I understand what Holy Fire is, but some guy in the middle of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to celebrate the resurrection lights a fire, and then all of a sudden everybody's got something in their hand with fire. And I can't imagine how unsafe this can possibly be. And you've just had tens of thousands of religious pilgrims who come into uh, Jerusalem for for Orthodox Easter. And on top of that, you have a second Seder that's observed uh, tomorrow night at the close of Pesach. And then you have uh, the, then you have Sabbath on Saturday. So there's not not only is there nothing open, there ain't going to be not nothing open. I'm going to use as triple negatives. It's I just found that out today. I was really planning on doing something Saturday and nada. Okay. The focal point of the Passover is the lamb. The lamb is chosen ahead of time and is observed to make sure that the lamb is without a spot or blemish. That means there's no observable defect in, in the lamb. And that is designed to picture the perfection of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is without sin. Therefore, only he is qualified to go to the cross. Because if it's a, a human being that is tainted by sin, then the only person for whom he can die is himself. But because of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, which gives an infinite value to whatever he does in his humanity, then and because he is without sin in his humanity, he is qualified to go to the cross as our lamb. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, he is our Passover, Christ our Passover. He is our Passover lamb. And so whenever we think of Passover, we shouldn't divorce ourselves from the whole Jewish background because that is brought over as a very real dimension to our um, understanding of our salvation. And in fact, the whole concept of redemption is grounded in what happened at the Exodus. So it's interesting how God in his... Um, Universal pedagogy is he's trying to teach the human race about these spiritual truths starts with these very concrete images in the Old Testament. The, the lamb that's without spot or blemish, the sacrifice, the, the, the having to cut the throat of the lamb and the blood and, uh, all that is entailed in that, that, and putting your hand upon the lamb to identify your sins with the lamb so that now the lamb dies because you sinned. So all of this imagery is present here. So with this as a core verse to understand the doctrine of redemption, we need to understand how this fits within the scope of God's salvation plan for us. And this takes us back to a doctrine I haven't uh, reviewed in a while, I don't believe, and that is the doctrine of the barrier, that when God created man, there was perfect harmony, perfect fellowship between God and Adam and Eve in the garden. There was a a harmonious relationship. God uh, walked with them on a daily basis. We don't know how long it lasted. Some people want to try to make it last as long as it could. I don't think it lasted that long. I don't think it, it lasts long. The, the longest it could last is about 110, 120 years, maybe. And that's because uh, we know that, that Adam begot Seth when he's 130 years old. And that's 130 years from the moment he's created, not 130 years from his sin. Because from, from the two, uh, 24 hours after he, uh, after he was created, he was a day old. There was morning and there was evening and it was the seventh day and then it was the eighth day and time is marching on. So it's funny. I've had people say, no, well, that's only 130 years from the time he fell. What kind of clock do you have? That's not how it works. 
the time factor was consistent from the day he was born. So if, if he's 130 years old and Seth is born, and Seth is born after Cain and Abel are killed, I mean, excuse me, after Cain kills Abel, then they would, let's say they reach the age of about 20. So that would mean that, that from the time of the fall until the time that Cain kills Abel would be approximately 21 years. We'll have a year there for, for Eve to get pregnant and give birth, and then 20 years, and then he kills Abel. So 21 years. Well, 21 years from 130 is 109. So that's the longest time period that you could have for Adam and Eve to be in the garden, conceivably. It could have been a year or two shorter. Maybe they were 17 and 18, but you get the point. But if if they were younger, then, um, uh, I mean, if, if uh, Adam fell after three or four years, it just took him a while before all they were older when they were born. If they were 50 and 60 years old when Cain killed Abel, then it would have been a, a much shorter time in the garden. So they're there, they're enjoying that relationship with God, and then... Eve is tempted by Satan, and she yields to the temptation, eats the fruit. She died spiritually, offers it to Adam. He died spiritually. God came to walk in the garden, and they ran and hid because they knew internally that they were in trouble. Something had changed. They were now spiritually dead. So they were separated by sin. And so we talk about that, but there are components to the sin problem that are present in, in the Scripture. First of all, it's sin. Because there's sin, there's a separation from God, because God is not able to have a relationship with a sinful creature. So sin itself is part of that barrier. Sin means to miss a mark or to fall short of a standard. Then there's the penalty of sin. There's a judicial penalty that's assessed, and that is spiritual death. So something happened instantly when they Adam, I mean, when Eve ate from the fruit, and then when Adam ate of the fruit, there was this judicial separation from God, and man lost the capacity to have a relationship with God. And then we have a problem with the character of God, because God is perfectly righteous. He cannot have fellowship with creatures that are less than perfection. And this is a problem all the time that we have with, with people who just uh, are confused over the gospel, confused over evangelism, confused over many things because they don't understand the character of God. Uh, understanding the character of God helps us to understand why the Bible is consistent when we have these things that take place like the holy war of the of uh, taking the, the the land, the conquest, and we'll see this coming up in First Samuel 15 on Tuesday nights, and try to try to wrestle with why this is not the same as what happens in Islam, and why it was necessary because of the character of God, and it demonstrates how harsh the problem is with sin in the human race. We want to minimize sin. But, but God won't ever let us. If he always get, treats us in grace, but sooner or later, the reality of the horrors of sin comes into play. There is not only the judicial penalty of sin, which is the, the judicial reality of the spiritual death and separation of the human race. There is spiritual death on the part of the individual. Each person is individually born, spiritually dead, and separated from God. The fifth component is our lack of righteousness. We've, we, are un, we, we don't measure up. We can never measure up. It's impossible for a human being to measure up to what God expects. We just can't do it. God is the one who has to uh, provide that for us. And then a... A sixth dimension that is brought out by Paul in Romans chapter 5 is that we are dead in Adam, and and we in Adam all die. It's our position in Adam, our identification with his sin. He is the one who was the designated head of the human race so that whatever decision he made affected the rest of us. Now, that may seem a little unfair. Well, it is unfair. 
It's unfair when we vote for a congressman to go represent us in Washington, D.C., and they promise us that they're going to do A, B, and C, and they do just the opposite. That's not fair. They're to represent me, and we get angry and we get frustrated because our representatives fail to represent us. Okay, so when Adam sinned, he was our designated representative. So in Adam's fall, as the old Puritan primer read, in Adam's fall, we send all. That's how it works. That's how it works in life. We have many different people who represent us in many different ways. We have uh, from politics to uh, business. We have all kinds of people who represent us. And when they make decisions that we disagree with, and especially when they go bad, we feel that it's terribly unjust, and it is, because we live in a fallen world, and that's what happens with sin. So these are the problems. Uh, there are probably other dimensions that can be brought out, but these are the basic ones, and all of that composes this barrier that separates us from, from, from God. So then we have the cross that destroys the barrier. It wipes it out so that sin is no longer the issue. This is one thing that is rarely understood in, in evangelism, is that sin isn't the issue. But the unbeliever needs to understand that sin is a problem, not his personal sins, but he needs to understand that sin is a problem and that it makes him spiritually dead. Otherwise, he doesn't want the solution. If he can't grasp the fact that he's thirsty and what that means, he'll never take a drink of water. So the reason that a person needs to be informed that they're a sinner is because they have to understand why they need to be saved, not browbeaten and made guilty because they have committed sin, which is usually what happens in uh, in a lot of evangelism. It's just an understanding that a person is spiritually dead and therefore you're separated from God. Now the next thing that happens is that this is God begins to solve the problem. The first basic solution is unlimited atonement. And we need to stop there a minute and just understand this a little bit, that the word unlimited means that it, that it applies in some ways to every single human being. Now, the word atonement is a funny word. It's come into English, and it's come into English theology and other theology because... Uh, of the Old Testament depiction of, of the sacrifice as a as, as providing something called in the Hebrew kafar, and in the in early years, especially in in early years of the Reformation and pre-Reformation with Wycliffe and others who didn't know Hebrew that well, it was very difficult for uh, many Gentiles to learn Hebrew because of the horrid horrid anti-Christian anti-Semitism that dominated the medieval culture. And the last thing in the world a Jew would want to do is to teach a Gentile the Hebrew. You know, they were, they were completely separated. This was one of the horrible things in the history of, of Christianity. And so, uh, they thought that Kafar, there's two, actually two, uh, homonyms. Uh, that's words that sound alike, spelled alike, but mean different things, homophones, that uh, mean different things. One is the, the pitch that Noah used to cover the ark. That verb is kafar. The other is the word that's used in the ritual language of, of Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers. But when you look at how the rabbis who translated the Septuagint into... Um, into Greek, translated those words, they often use the word katharizo in Greek, which means to cleanse. They didn't understand it as a covering. They understood it as cleansing. But what happens in the development of the language of the Bible and theology is that the, the English decided they needed to create a word that would that would capture the essence of this. And so they understood that this brought God and man together, so they invented a word called at-one-ment. At-one-ment. See what that spells? Atonement. Atonement came from at-one-ment. And so they're trying to explain this concept of, of, of basically reconciliation. And 
It's come to mean the, be one of the terms that is used to describe the totality of Christ's work on the cross. And I, I use it more in the objective sense of what's accomplished on the cross. There are three basic problems that face the human race spiritually. And I think that to grasp this helps us to understand what we're seeing here in the barrier. The first problem that faces man will be addressed by the solutions to the character of God, the penalty of sin, and sin. The second and third are handled by the top, are, are, by the solutions to the top three problems of spiritual death, our lack of righteousness and position in Adam. Okay, the first problem is we have the, a judicial penalty. The judicial penalty was assessed on the human race the instant that Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They became spiritually dead. This is the judicial penalty. The whole team is put out, out of bounds. They're, they're, they're put out of bounds, they're put in the penalty box, and there's nothing they can do to solve the problem. And they keep multiplying inside the penalty box, but they're all in the penalty box. So the first thing that has to happen is the penalty has to be paid for, and that's an objective thing. The second problem is the reality of the fact that all those generations are going to be born inside the penalty box, and experientially they're spiritually dead and separated from God. And the third problem is they all lack righteousness. Every one of them is born unrighteous and corrupt. No matter how sweet and nice and wonderful and talented and brilliant they might be, they are morally and spiritually dead and, I mean, and morally and spiritually corrupt and they're spiritually dead. So the solution to the first problem is what's paid at the cross. Christ pays the penalty. He redeems the entire lot. And that refers to the fact that the objective penalty is paid. So that God's righteousness is satisfied, his justice is, right, is satisfied, and that's what we call propitiation. And that's why 1 John 2.2 2 mentions this, that God is propitiated for all. That's every single one, whether they accept it or not. They're out of the penalty box. But that doesn't mean that they're made spiritually alive. They're still all spiritually dead. It's just that the, penalty, the judicial penalty that God assessed is paid for. So since the second problem is there, they're each still individually spiritually dead, the only way they can individually change their status is to believe in Christ's death for sin. And the instant they do, they're born again. That's that term. They're regenerated. They become a new creature in Christ. They did not have a human spirit before, and they get this human spirit, which is that immaterial ability that allows the soul to have a relationship with God. So the when we talk about the classic argument between limited atonement and unlimited atonement, uh, the atonement is unlimited. Christ pays the penalty for all. But it's limited because it's only efficacious. Not even, I'm not going to use that term. That term is used by some, and I don't like it. It's, it's not applied to individuals until they believe. When they believe, then they're regenerate. The experiential individual problem being spiritually dead is resolved. And for the problem of righteousness... They receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and God declares them just. Now, that's remarkable. Y'all have heard this so much, it, it, it borders on boring. But this is remarkable. We're not saved because of anything that we've done or because we're so smart that we exercise positive volition or because of any other human factor. God declares us just because we have Christ's righteousness. When God looks at us and declares us just, it's not because something changed inside of us. This is one of the problems with lordship salvation. Lordship salvation still has a remnant of the thinking that was part of Roman Catholicism, that somehow that, that there's some moral change that occurs in the believer so that they can't be as gnarly and sinful after they're saved as they were before. 
But if you just think about it a while, there, there's all kinds of problems with that. I've known all kinds of people who have been saved when they were very young, three, four, five, I was six, seven, eight, and you're just not that experientially wicked. You're not doing those many things. You're not going out on a drunken bender every weekend. You're not beating up on your parents. I know there's a few cases of that maybe, but generally you're not beating up on your parents uh, you're not um, you're not doing horrible things to your friends. You're you're limited in the expression of your sin nature, but you get saved and you're justified. But when you're 14 or 15 years old, if you're a normal 14 or 15 year old, then you're just nasty at times, and we all were, and we're not very pleasant to be around as we're trying to figure out how to grow up. And all of a sudden, you're starting to discover options and opportunities for your sin nature that would never occur to you when you were five or six years of age. But once you hit puberty, then that even expands. And now, unless you have learned and been trained well by your parents, now it's, and in this culture in which we live, I'm just glad I didn't grow up in this, with these options and opportunities. It's, I don't know how young people do it. Of course, many of them don't. So what we see is that Christ, this emphasis on the universality of Christ's work on the cross. First Timothy 2.6 tells us that he gave himself a ransom for all. And that word all means all. Now, sometimes all doesn't mean all. The people who hold to limited atonement often emphasize the fact that all doesn't always mean all, and they're right. In the Gospels, when John writes that, all the people in Jerusalem went out to see John the Baptist. He doesn't mean every single individual person. He's using language the same way that, that we do. And we talk in terms of broad generalities. And that's what what happens. But you have the word all being used in, in a specific sense many times in Scripture, and this is one of them. He gave himself as a ransom for all, and the Greek word there translated ransom is the word antilutron. We'll see that a little later. This is one of those words. It's built on the root lutrao. You can see it there, that L-U-T-R. That's the root. And anti is a Hebrew, I mean, excuse me, a Greek uh, pre- uh, preposition of substitution. And it means to pay something for someone. And so there we get that idea of substitutionary sacrifice. That's the essence of the atonement. It's not the idea of, of, of a ransom payment to Satan. It's the idea of substitution and a real substitution. It's not a phony substitution. I remember somebody asking me when I first went to seminary, said one of the things you have to deal with in thinking through this issue of did Christ die for everyone or only for the elect is what does it mean that he really actually truly died as a substitute? And see, in Calvinism, they'll say Christ died as a substitute only for the elect because the way classic unlimited atonement was expressed, especially in the Reformation and, and, and after, is that is that Christ died for the unbeliever, but if they don't accept Christ's payment, then when they die, they go to the lake of fire and pay the penalty there. So did Christ actually die for them if they end up paying the penalty? No. You know, that, that's a fake substitution. It's also called hypothetical substitution. And it ends up being the, at the end, if I were to die, and let's say I'm in the lake of fire, and I'm talking to somebody, and they said, well, you know, we should have believed in Jesus. They said Christ died for us. Well, if Christ died for us, what am I, uh, what am I doing here? Uh, I, 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 if he died for me, if I had believed it, then I would have gone to heaven. But because I didn't believe it, he didn't really die for me, did he? So it's a misunderstanding that's there. So he died as a ransom for all, but in the sense that he pays the judicial penalty to satisfy God's righteousness and justice for every single human being. So sin isn't the issue anymore. 
1 Peter 4.10, For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all mankind. That's the idea there, not all males, but all mankind, especially of believers. See, that last phrase tells us that, that, that it's all man refers to believer and unbeliever alike, but especially believers means there's dimensions that are of the cross that are applied specifically and especially to those who are believers. Another passage in 2 Peter 2, 1, Peter refers to false prophets who arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So he recognizes that there will be those who come up within the ranks. And I could give you a list of names, unfortunately, of people who have come up within our ranks in a broad sense, who are teaching heresy today. I mean, real heresy. I mean, there are some who are te- into replacement theology. There are some who are off into amillennialism. There, there are others who are so immersed in mysticism that, and God speaking to them, it is just downright scary how they got from where they were to where they are today. But for the grace of God, go each of us. So, so when Peter's saying this, he's not saying that these false teachers are necessarily coming from outside and infiltrating the church, although that's a problem. He's talking about these are people who got out of fellowship, and in arrogance they became false teachers, and they introduced heresies that were destructive, even denying the master who bought them. Okay? Now, if this applies to unbelievers... And the way Peter is talking about this, it it could apply to either believers or unbelievers. It's not necessarily just talking about believers. These false prophets arose among the people, as they did in the Old Testament, and denied the pastor who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So here you have somebody who's carnal and heretical, and yet Jesus paid the penalty for their sin. And the word here is agorazo, the one I mentioned earlier, from the marketplace, purchasing in the marketplace. And so, again, it emphasizes this economic translation, uh, our e- economic aspect. Then we have 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means satisfaction. He satisfied God's righteousness and justice. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Ours refers to believers, whole world refers to all the unbelievers. A great passage that Christ's death had an unlimited dimension to it. So, the second aspect of the barrier is solving the penalty of sin, paying the price. That's redemption. That's redemption. So we're going to look at the language of redemption. The first point in the doctrine of redemption is understanding the language. This is really important because a lot of people don't understand um, redemption and how the language is used, both specifically as well and, and literally as well as figuratively. So in the Old Testament, there's only two words that are used, and each word is emphasizing a slightly different aspect although both words do have as part of their uh, core semantic meaning the idea of of providing or, or supplying something for someone. The first word is pada, and pada has to do with the payment of a price to free someone from a state such as slavery or death or destruction, and it always emphasizes the payment of a price to bring about freedom. That's the ultimate result of redemption when the word used is pada. It brings about uh, deliverance. And it's used with reference to uh, many different things in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you two or three examples. In Exodus 13.13, in the law we read, but every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Now, this is in the context of the first Passover. What what happens in the first Passover? It's the tenth plague. In the tenth plague, God said he's going to kill the firstborn of livestock and the firstborn of humans throughout all the land of, of Egypt. The firstborn is going to die. 
So every first offspring of a donkey, it, Moses says, is you shall redeem with a lamb. When a donkey gives birth to that firstborn, you're going to sacrifice a lamb. Show the value of that firstborn. If you do not rede- but if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. That is, you shall kill that firstborn of the donkey. And every firstborn among your, among your sons, you shall redeem. And that was brought about as we, in a couple of verses later. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, the Lord said, I sacri- I, therefore, Moses says, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn son I redeemed. How did he redeem him? Through a sacrifice of a lamb to God. So this is the idea of the payment of a price that takes place there. Another verse, Exodus 21.8. This is a verse... I, I chose this because this relates to the the, uh, as the laws related to to divorce. If a man is betrothed to a woman and then he displeases her, this is uh, before the um, before the marriage, and there's find some fault with her, then he shall let her be redeemed. Her freedom can be purchased so that she does not go through with the engagement. Uh, but there's certain restrictions. She shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. He can't uh, sell her into slavery. Job 33:28. Now, Job is an interesting book because Job, Job is the earliest book, I believe, that was written in the Old Testament. It's written before the Pentateuch. Job lived approximately the time of of Isaac and Jacob, along with the patriarchs. And I think Job is the first book that's written. It deals with one of the most significant issues in human experience, which is suffering and undeserved suffering. And there's a lot of things that Job says that reveal a rather in-depth knowledge of doctrine that is not explicit in either Genesis or, or in Job. He talks about, I know my Redeemer liveth. Isn't that interesting? And here in Job 33, 28, he has redeemed my soul from going to the pit, and my life shall see the light. So he he understands his concept of a payment, a substitutionary payment. Psalm 44, 26, David prays, rise up, be, be our help, and redeem us. For the sake of thy loving kindness. So calling upon God uh, to redeem us. Then we come to the next word that's used in the Old Testament, which again is a very interesting word. Ga'al is the verb. Go'el is the noun. Ga'al as a verb means to redeem. And it is also used to refer in a participial form to the redeemer. Uh, usually it emphasizes this idea that we find exhibited in the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. And the key idea for the Goel is he provides security, he provides protection, but it also emphasizes that he is a close kinsman. He's a family member. It's a family responsibility. And in, 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 according to the Mosaic law, if, if a man was married, and he dies without get, without offspring, he has no children, then his brother, if he's got a brother that's not married, then his brother has the responsibility to marry his widow and to have children by her to raise them up in the name of the previous husband in order to preserve property rights and to maintain the family as the core unit in society. That's part of the uh, way of protecting a nation by securing the, uh, the family and under divine institution number, number three. So this idea is what's exhibited in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a Gentile woman. She's a Moabitess and she's married to, uh, one man and his, and, uh, there's two brothers and their father. 
And the father dies, and then later the two brothers die, and the t- two wives are left without husbands. Uh, one wife goes back uh, back home, but Ruth is going to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so it's a lot of lessons about grace, but Naomi, Naomi recognizes this law of levered marriage and says, well, we can go back to where uh, where the family's from in Bethlehem, and there is a close kinsman, and that's Boaz. Uh, and there's a close kinsman, and you can go to him, and maybe he will provide protection for the family. And so we go through the whole story of Ruth identifying who Boaz is and letting Boaz know who she is. And there's another person that's a closer relationship, and so that has to be determined whether he will take the responsibility or not, and he won't. And eventually Ruth and Boaz get married. And so Boaz is the Goel. He is the kinsman redeemer who provides protection and security for uh, Ruth, who as a widow would have nothing and no protection. The widow was just left almost destitute in, in that culture. Pada and Gaal are the two Hebrew words. Now, when we get into the New Testament, we have quite a few different words, and they're, words, and they're all built off of the same base, the, either the uh, lutron or lutrao, that's the verb, or the agorazo base. So we'll just kind of run through these because what I want you to pay attention to is this idea that it always refers to the payment of a price. Redemption has to do with paying the price or the results of the payment of a price. So antilutron, we talked about a little while ago, has to do with paying the penalty, paying the price for the freedom of a slave or a prisoner to rescue them from slavery so that they are purchased and they're given freedom. A noun form is anti, apa, excuse me, that was Antilutron, that's a noun. This is apolutrosis, another noun formed with a different Greek preposition, still the same root, L-U-T-R, and it means deliverance procured by the payment of a ransom, to release a slave upon receipt of a ransom. Notice the idea here. These are great words that have been developed in, in Roman culture that God is using to help us understand that we've been bought with the price to rescue us from slavery, from being in the slave market of sin. The noun is lutron, which simply means to, the pay, refers to the payment of a ransom price in order to set someone free. The verb is lutrao, and that again refers to the payment of that ransom price to deliver by a ransom or to liberate. It's used in the sense of redemption here in our, our particular passage. Uh, another noun is lutrosis or lutrosis or apolutrosis, which simply means redemption or deliverance or freedom. Now that's a great idea that that redemption is emphasizing the aspect of freedom. That's what Paul gets to in Galatians six one. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So you have lutrosis, you have apolutrosis, and then um, the sixth word is lutrotes. Which, which refers to the redeemer or the deliverer as the someone who pays for the freedom. And in Acts 7.35, it describes Moses as the redeemer of Israel. Other passages, it refers to God as the redeemer of, of Israel. Uh, the next two words are built off of agorazo. Agorazo means to buy something in the marketplace, to purchase something in the marketplace. The agora in, in some places refers to the slave market. And so it is purchasing someone who is a slave. And in the concept of salvation, it's Christ is paying the price to liberate those who are slaves to sin. And then there's ex agorazo, which means to purchase out from that uh, prepositional prefix X means to purchase out of the slave market, and that has the idea of completely liberating someone from the slave market, and that's used in passages like Galatians 3.13 and Galatians 4.5. Now, redemption then, in conclusion, has the idea of purchase, to buy and to liberate. And it has this idea of of delivering something, someone for something. The context is going to fill out the details, but it has that idea of paying a price. Now, in the Old Testament, 
So the first point that I've covered, spent most of the last hour covering, is just the language of redemption, helping us understand when you hear the word redeem, you should hear paying a price. In the Old Testament, there are two basic pictures for redemption. The first is the Exodus event. That's why that is so important again and again and again. That's why God tells the Jewish people every single year at this date, you have to celebrate by uh, having a meal. And uh, this is what the, 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 the sons, the children in the house will ask these questions. And the first question is, why is this night different from any other night? And that is because this is, this is because this is the night where God redeemed us from slavery in Egypt. And so through these questions that are asked, uh, through the Haggadah, then you tell the whole story of the Exodus. And so everybody's reminded of this on an, on an annual basis. So the Exodus becomes this model of redemption. This is the language that is used. Uh, both Pada and Gael are used to describe what God did for Israel in redeeming them from slavery, physical slavery, to the Egyptians. For example, in Exodus 6.6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord... I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, what's going on here is that God is commissioning Moses to be the the one to go and be the deliverer. And Moses is saying, well, what do I tell the people? And God tells him, say that I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. And the word there for deliverance is a Hebrew word which uh, it, it can have a violent context to it. It means to rip something out, to pull it apart, to re- and in that sense to remove it and to bring someone out from something. And he concludes by saying, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So the Ga'al there it, it is emphasizing how God will redeem them. He will protect them and preserve them. Remember, that's the main idea of Ga'al. And he will do this with an outstretched arm. And the arm of God always focuses on his power, his omnipotence, his care, and with great judgments. So he's going to be judging the Egyptians. So that's going to be the context of how he will bring them out. In Exodus 15:13, Moses says, "In thy loving kindness, thou hast led the people whom thou hast redeemed." So now they're out, and God is delivering them. And notice what the basis. It's His loving kindness. The Hebrew word there is Chesed. And Hesed has the idea of God's faithful, loyal love. He hasn't even given the, the Mosaic Covenant yet, but he's loyal to the covenant of Abraham and the promise that he made to Abraham back in, in Genesis chapter uh, 17 that the people would be in bondage for 430 years. And then he would bring them back to the land. So God is faithful to that. So Moses says, In thy loving kindness you have led the people whom thou hast redeemed, Gaal, and thy strength thou hast guided them to thy holy habitation. Then we have uh, Deuteronomy 7, 8. How did God redeem Israel? He purchased them through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The lamb price was not paid to Pharaoh, the land price is symbolic, and the payment is made to satisfy God's judgment. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And this, I believe, is the word padah here. In Deuteronomy 9.26, And I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy thy people, even thine inheritance, whom thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, whom thou hast brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Redeemer must be uh, free to pay the redemption, the redemption price. Now, we go on to uh, Deuteronomy 13.5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. This is a false prophet who comes up. Uh, because he's counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from that land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Again and again and again what you find in Deuteronomy, passages like Deuteronomy 13.5 and 15.5, it's that God is the one who redeemed them. The identification of God in the rest of the Old Testament almost always goes back 
that this is the one who brought you up out of Egypt. This is the God who redeemed you, just as we constantly think about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. So we see these passages again and again and again. Now I'm going to stop here. We'll come back next time and just summarize this again, review this, and then talk a little bit about the second great illustration, which is the one I've already referred to related to Goel, and that is the redemption of the kinsman redeemer and how that relates to understanding that for Christ to redeem us, he has to be truly human because he's our kinsman redeemer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, think uh, a little more precisely about our uh, salvation, about what Christ did for us on the cross, how so much had to be done to pay this penalty that was against us because of sin, and that it's, it's not a light thing, it's a very heavy thing. And it's very difficult and complex, and, and it's not something to be treated lightly or frivolously. And this is why Peter says this is the ground for the command that we are to conduct ourselves uh, with fear in this life, knowing that we have not been redeemed with corruptible things from our empty manner of life. And, Father, we pray that you will help us to think through these things, understand these things, And as we continue to grow spiritually, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.